All right, we are continuing in our series on the book of Jeremiah, and I want to start this morning by asking you all to think about something. Yes, this is going to take a little bit of effort. Sorry, George. <laughs> think, of, think of a conflict that you've had in the past, or perhaps one that you're currently in. Any degree of conflict that you've had in the past, or one that you're currently in. Just think about it for a second. I'm sure most of you have had at least one in your life. Now ask yourself, where was Jesus, or where is Jesus, in that conflict? Is he a part of it at all? And if he is, how so? If not, how would his values, his posture, his way of being, his heart for that other person, perhaps, enter into that picture? How would it change things? Would it? If you were to carry his heart into that situation, how might the situation change? I think, as Christians, we often feel like we have to deal with our anger in one of two ways, right? We either justify ourselves and believe that our anger is worthy of holding on to because it's a righteous kind of anger or it's a justified kind of anger, or we believe that we aren't supposed to be angry and so we shove it under the rug and attempt to just keep everything peaceable. Neither of these approaches actually embraces what Scripture teaches us. So what I want to present this morning is a way of handling our anger and our angst in a way that allows it to be both experienced but also transformed. A couple of steps on the journey towards finding God in the wilderness of our anger, okay? But to do this, we have to first look at Jeremiah. So we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 11, if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 11. Um, the words will also be up on the screen. We're starting at verse 18, and we're going to travel on through into chapter 12 until verse 6. There's a heading called Plot Against Jeremiah, and that's where we're starting. Okay, Jeremiah 11, verse 18. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time, he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause." Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the people of Anathoth who are threatening to kill you, saying, do not prophesy in the names of the Lord or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them because I will bring disaster on the people of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. And now starting in verse, in chapter 12. You are always righteous, Lord. This is Jeremiah speaking. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? 
Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. And now God's answer to Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, a convoluted passage, and there's a lot going on. Um, so let's dig into this. What is going on here? Okay, what's this, what's this horrible situation that Jeremiah has been faced with? Well, what we discover here in this passage is that the Lord has revealed something to Jeremiah. And it's that there's a, a death threat or a plot against Jeremiah's life. Something that Jeremiah would not have known had God not revealed it to him. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, he says in verse 18. Remember, based on what we've read so far in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is not the most popular person on the block right now. And what he discovers is that it's not even just random people, okay, political figures, religious leaders, the people that he's made royally mad, that we know that he's made mad, that are trying to do away with him. It's actually his own people from his own hometown of Anathoth. Sorry, there's a little bit going on here, but I'm just going to keep talking. From his own hometown of Anathoth, which we can see in verse 21. Remember the words of Jesus? A prophet can't prophesy in his own hometown. This, uh, this is case in point here in Jeremiah. But even then, it gets worse. We find out in chapter 12 that it's even more personal than this. Look at the very last verse that we just read. Your relatives, says the Lord, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. What? Why would Jeremiah's own family want to do away with him? Well, there's a couple of possibilities here, and for the sake of sheer information and context, I will be brief, but remember back in the very first sermon of this series, we talked about how Jeremiah began his prophetic career during the reign of King Josiah. Okay, and King Josiah was a king like no other. He did all these religious reforms. He took down all the altars and the high places. He called the people to repentance, which didn't really do anything in the long run, but he tried to do all these reforms among the people of Israel. Well, there's a good chance that because Jeremiah's family, he came from a priestly family, and if most of the priests in Israel were worshiping and doing things at these high places, it's a good chance that a lot of his family members lost their jobs when King Josiah came into power. And if Jeremiah was in King Josiah's camp, then he was not in his own family's camp, which would have made them royally upset, no pun intended. You think COVID caused political division. 
this would have caused uproars among the Israelite communities. But even beyond this, even beyond all that, Jeremiah's prophecies, as we've seen, right, challenged the whole institution of Israel's identity. So naturally, he would have created many enemies. This probably wasn't the first death threat on his life. But would he have ever imagined that such hatred, such conflict, would arise out of his own family? Probably not. Probably not. Verse 19, they don't like the fruit, so they want to destroy the tree. Chop the tree down, and you don't have any more fruit. If you don't like what the prophet says, kill the prophet. Cut him down so that in a few years' time, people won't even remember his name anymore. Right? In ancient times, it was all about cutting off someone's name so that they wouldn't be remembered. They would have no history. They would have no lineage. Talk about a lonely and distressing situation. Poor guy, right? This, this poor guy. So what does Jeremiah do? Verse 20, he cries out to God who he knows judges righteously, who alone can test the heart and the mind, who knows what people are thinking. And Jeremiah wants to see this God take out vengeance on his enemies. In other words, God, I give my situation to you and I want you to punish them. I need you to do what needs to be done. I don't have the power to inflict punishment, to pay them what they deserve for these evil deeds. You know, I've, I've been coaxed into this like an innocent lamb led to the slaughter, right about to be put on the chopping block. So I need you to handle this. In other words, come on, God, do something. Do something. Now, most of us haven't had death threats on our lives. Or I hope most of us haven't. But we've certainly been in situations where we know we've been wronged and we want God to take care of the vengeance part. Or we see a conflict or, or a war going on somewhere else, and we want God to do something about it. Well, look at how Jeremiah handles this. He addresses the Lord who judges righteously, and it's that word fairly that we talked about a few weeks ago, and he wants to see justice. So let me see, he says. Let me see your justice at work. And then in verses 21 through 23, the Lord does promise to him that the people of Anathoth who are trying to kill him will be punished. The Lord does promise, actually, that he will act and grant the judgment that Jeremiah requests. Maybe just not in Jeremiah's timing. All right, you think, that's where we should have ended the passage for this morning. Case closed, people can go home, court adjourned, we got the Jeremiah Wins t-shirt, and we're done. Right? But not so fast. Not so fast. Not quite. Jeremiah stays in God's courtroom before the judge and wants to have a little word with him. Chapter 12, verse 1. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. See, he praises God, right? You are great. Yet. Yet. I would speak with you about your justice. Always a great way to start a complaint. Yes, but. However, nevertheless. 
having trouble turning my page. And notice, notice how he puts the ownership on Yahweh here. He says, your justice. I don't want to talk to you about just justice in general. I want to talk to you about your justice. How you do justice. How you are making these decisions and these verdicts. Why you do what you do, but more so why you don't do what you don't do. Isn't that often actually what really bothers us about God? It's never what God does, it's what God doesn't do. What he allows to happen, and this is what Jeremiah gives voice to. He wants God to answer his bigger questions. Like, yes, God, you're taking care of this situation. You know, you will punish my enemies, but I want to talk to you about bigger things. Second half of verse 1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless get to live at ease? In other words, why, when I'm doing all of these things for you, am I the one suffering? This doesn't make sense. It's a good question. And it's not the first time that somebody's asked it in Scripture. The character of Job actually asked a very similar question. In Job chapter 12, he says, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. And then in Psalm 73, the writer Asaph questions why the wicked get to live such carefree lives. This is what the wicked are like, he says, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Isn't this sometimes how we feel? (laughs) Why? Why is this the case, pleads Jeremiah. He knows that God is just, so it's, it's bizarre to him that God wouldn't do anything about the evil that he sees going on around him. And who specifically is he talking about here? Well, in verse 2, it mentions the ones who always have God on their lips but are far from their hearts. So, of course, here he's talking about religious leaders, probably members of his own family, who were supposed to be shepherding the people of Israel but had not even a pinch of a shepherd's heart for their sheep. Look at what Jeremiah does in verse 3. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. You alone are judge and you know exactly what's in my heart and mind. So drag them off like sheep to be butchered. You know, I was being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Drag them off. Butcher them. (laughs) Butcher them. Vindicate me, in other words. And do to them what they were going to do to me. Oh, wait, that sounds interesting. Do to them what they were going to do to me. Why does that sound familiar? Do to others what they would do to me. What is Jeremiah missing? What's missing here? Well, so often, like Jeremiah, we want God's justice, but we only want it in certain ways, or we want it in a certain kind of fashion, right? Towards certain people or certain situations. We we don't really want the whole judgment package. We want it in snippets. Because the whole package would need to include judgment on our own blindsidedness and brokenness and sinfulness. And we're never really quite ready for that, are we? 
We aren't ever really prepared to be reminded that the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every human person. We don't want to think about that. Unless, unless, the whole package of God's judgment also happens to involve a new covenant that happens to involve this little thing called forgiveness. As I've mentioned in sermons prior to this, the experiences of Jeremiah in many ways parallel that of Jesus. And it's no doubt that Jesus would have found much solace, much comfort in reading the book of Jeremiah for that reason. Jesus' own experiences weren't that different. We often gloss over this, but actually in John chapter 7, we see that Jesus' own brothers would have actually been happy to see him dead. They knew that the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus. And what they do is they actually try to persuade him to go to Jerusalem during a famous festival so that he can be caught, so that they can do away with him, because even his own brothers didn't believe in him. See, Jesus, too, couldn't trust even his own brothers. Jesus, too, was confronted by religious authorities who were secretly plotting to take his life. Jesus, too, rightly entrusted his case to his father, Yahweh. Jesus, too, was also eventually led like a lamb to the slaughter. But where Jesus differs from Jeremiah is precisely at this point of vulnerability. Where Jeremiah cried out to God for justice... Jesus stayed silent before his enemies. Where Jeremiah wanted to save his life, Jesus gave it. Where Jeremiah questioned God's justice, Jesus took it all onto himself. Where Jeremiah begged for God to punish his attackers, Jesus asked God to forgive them. And that, friends, is where the shift happens. Sometimes I like to imagine all of the old prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor guys, you know, getting a front seat in heaven to watch what God does with his Messiah, to watch that event, all this happening. Here is where the judgment is brought to full fruition, they think in their minds. Here is where God's wrath will finally be released. Here is where all of our efforts and all of our trials and all of our tears will finally be vindicated and we can see God's vengeance. And then, to see the looks on their faces as they watch the innocent Messiah led like a lamb to the slaughter carrying a crossbeam on his shoulders and receiving all the judgment that the sinful and unrighteous people of this world rightly deserved. Talk about unfairness. Talk about injustice. But this is actually what God had committed to all along. And so in these parallel stories, what we actually see Scripture offering us is two helpful ways of dealing with our anger and our hurt and bringing our concerns before God when we are in situations or we see situations of injustice. 
But I want to urge this morning that it takes embracing both to actually see transformation. With Jeremiah, we see an example of, of lament, right? Of grief, of appropriately addressing our anger and our distress and bringing our case before God. This is what we're encouraged to do, right? Throwing all the questions at him and all the doubts right before him in his courtroom, prying him for answers and asking, why is he allowing so much evil, right? Give him no rest, as Pastor Kevin said last week. We are encouraged to do that, to bring everything before him, We have an avenue, in other words, for bringing our case before God. Why is this happening? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why didn't you give me warning? Why why would you let me go through so much hurt as a cause of someone, perhaps, who's so close to me or involving someone so close to me? Why couldn't you have stopped this from happening? Where is fairness in this? I know you are righteous, Lord, and yet I would speak with you about your justice. I would speak with you about why you do certain things, but you don't do other things. Why you don't do what you don't do. Why you don't move quicker. Why I don't see the fruit of my labors. I would speak with you about your justice. Many of us have been in these kinds of places where situations, whether it's conflict or grief, hurt, abandonment, betrayal, even the loss of a loved one, have forced us into this kind of a posture before God. Right? A, a wilderness of anger, a wilderness of emotion. And Jeremiah gives voice, like many of the Psalms do, to these kinds of places. How do we sing, great is thy faithfulness, when evil seems to prevail? When good people die and bad people live, when good people suffer and bad people seem to get on fine. What, what is this? What kept Jeremiah on course with God, even seeing all this evil around him and some of it being very personal. Well, simply this. Trusting that God would see his justice through, even if it wasn't in Jeremiah's timing. Trusting that in God's framework, even if we didn't see it, Everything would work out in proper order as it should. Because it's only in our minds, it was only in Jeremiah's mind that the wicked were prospering, not in God's mind. The things that we think allow people to prosper and make them high and mighty in this world's economy are, is only in our minds. It's not in God's economy. The things that we think are valuable and good and prosperous are not the things that God values and thinks are good and prosperous. And like one scholar put it, as in the case of Jeremiah, God calls on us to endure and to trust in him as he works out his long-range plan, a plan that might include, as a critical component, a difficult situation we are enduring. It takes a lot of courage to do this. It takes a lot of courage to remember the bigger picture, to trust God in these situations, let alone what Jesus asks us to do. It takes a lot of courage. Jeremiah was an exemplar in his own way, in his own context, in the way that God was dealing with his people at that time. Jeremiah is an exemplar to us. And what he offers us is a preliminary approach for finding God in the wilderness of our anger. 
our sometimes righteous anger, justified anger, appropriate anger. We can lament, we can grieve, we can question, we can pray for justice. We need to start here. But we can't end here. We can't stay in that kind of a wilderness place because Jesus then shows us not just how to manage and deal with our anger, but how to transform it. With a non-tunnel visioned, larger focus in mind that's dependent on God's timing and God's justice, it is possible for us to shift our anger from the example of Jeremiah to the example of Christ. Jeremiah summoned God to justice, to vengeance, to appropriate punishment for his enemies. Jesus calls us to go one step further, to trust that God's got that in hand, and then to love our enemies instead. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 6. But to you who are listening, I say, (coughs) love your enemies. Love your enemies. And with the backdrop of, you know, Jeremiah and the other prophets, this would have been rather revolutionary to say. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. See, because if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. He calls us to a whole, totally new, transformative way of living. In other words, nothing will make you stand out as God's people. Nothing will make us stand out or even capable of dealing with our anger and our hatred unless we love those who hurt us. We will always be prone to harboring bitterness, suppressing anger, or returning to these cries for vengeance unless we actually have those emotions transformed. There's a Palestinian pastor, theologian named Johanna Catanacho. He's written a piece on biblical justice in response to the war that's currently happening on the Gaza Strip between Hamas and Israel. And he actually just did um, a podcast with Regent College. So if you're a podcast person, I would encourage you to download the Regent College podcast and listen to it. Uh, He's fantastic. And I've also attached that, the blog that I took this from, um, on the prayer page on our website. So you can also go there for an encouragement on how to pray for this conflict. But he says this, the politics of hate need to be replaced by the politics of love. A political paradigm shift needs to happen to end wars in Palestine, Israel. The politics of love must affect our vision, our educational system, our media, and our dreams. The Jewish dream should not be the nightmare of Palestinians, and vice versa. Biblical justice, he says, is not limited to one side of a conflict, but rather is a missional kind of justice that seeks the best interest of the oppressed as well as the oppressor. Biblical justice is not limited to one side of a conflict, but is a missional kind of justice that seeks the best interest of the oppressed as well as the oppressor. Let me give you another example of this. 
There's a story I recently read of a Christian evangelist from the region of Wilata, Ethiopia, who in the early 70s traveled to a predominantly Muslim town nearby, in a nearby region, and tried to proclaim the gospel there. But the Muslim residents of the town eventually got so frustrated with him, they ganged up on him and beat him so severely that he was near death. And then they cast him out of the town, and his colleagues had to carry him half dead back to his hometown in Walata. Well, years later, sometime in the mid-80s, a terrible famine gripped this part of Ethiopia, leading to the death of thousands of Ethiopians. And as part of, these, as part of the famine relief efforts, uh, SIM, Serving in Mission, it's an evangelical mission organization, they organized relief teams to go to the most hard-hit areas and to distribute food. Well, this evangelist volunteered for one of these teams. And to his surprise, his particular famine relief team was assigned to the same Muslim town where he had been beaten years earlier. As he sat at the table in the center of the town registering families for grain distribution and other things, several of the townspeople actually recognized him. And rather amazed and overwhelmed, they said to him, You're the man that we beat and left for dead. How is it that you've returned to come and save the lives of our children? And it was simply as a result of his presence there and his posture of love and forgiveness for these people that several people in that town turned to Christ. And what he'd hoped to do years before ended up happening years later only as a result of his suffering. Another more recent story, a little closer to home. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, recently shared with me something that happened just this past Thursday. She was supposed to get uh, blood work done at Willowbrook Life Labs here in Langley, but they were having technical issues, and so she ended up having to get, uh, get her blood work done at Langley Hospital. Well, it was early in the morning, and she happened to be zooming in on a prayer meeting, which is a funny thing to do when you're waiting in a hospital waiting room, but she was there. Already feeling a little bit sheepish about this, of course, while she's in the middle of this prayer meeting, a nurse comes up to her, a young man, uh, to do her blood work and asks her what she's watching. Well, she hesitatingly admitted that it was a prayer meeting, to which the nurse responded, oh, so you're a Christian. Would you mind praying for me? She was a bit caught off guard, to say the least. And the nurse didn't offer any guidance on what he wanted prayer for, but there they were, and so she prayed for him. The two of them ended up grabbing a bite to eat afterwards, and it turned out that this nurse had quite the story. His fiance had left him, run off with his best friend, and in his anger, he'd left God, left his church, contemplated some major life decisions, thought about changing his gender, fell into a deep kind of depression, and then finally decided that he was going to work one more week and then take his life. And that day, that very day, was his last shift of the week. And he'd come over to this friend of mine because he figured it was his last opportunity to ever do blood work for someone. And what he shared with my friend 
was that her prayer, which involved the word courage, had so struck him that he realized that what he needed actually was courage to forgive his fiance and to make that shift from his anger to Christ's forgiveness. He even mentioned that he was going to start going back to church. See, without Jesus, without Jesus, any of us are capable of remaining caught in a cycle of anger and questions of injustice and unfairness that never manifest into something different. They aren't transformed. Any of us are capable of getting caught in that cycle of bitterness and anger unless something comes in to break the cycle. Do we believe in the power of Jesus to do this? To transform those emotions so that they can be used actually for his purposes? Do we believe that he can do this and that he does this in real ways, in ordinary ways sometimes? Ordinary ways that become extraordinary. Can we enter into God's courtroom as the appropriate place to bring all of our anger, all of our grief, all of our lament, our frustrations, our cries for justice and vengeance, as Jeremiah did, and then let ourselves be reminded, first and foremost, that he holds the whole picture. He holds it all. Can we do this? And then secondly, can we see in that courtroom Jesus standing there with us, advocating for our own brokenness and reminding us to love just as he's loved us, to believe that he can actually transform our anger into forgiveness. Can we trust, as we sang earlier, that even when we don't see it, he's working? Even when we don't feel it, he's working. Jeremiah shows us who we are and where we can start, what we need in order to process through our grief and our anger in our wilderness wanderings. But Jesus shows us where we can finish. Let me pray. Living God, our, our prayer this morning after we've now been humbled by your word is simply this, that by your spirit, you would enable us to believe, to really believe that you are able to transform us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.